turn with me uh, once again to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. It's been uh, a while since we were in 1 Peter with the Christmas season and uh, me being sick for a couple of weeks before that. So I'm excited to be back in uh, this series. And let's just quickly remember some of the, the highlights of what we've covered so far. Peter uh, has been reminding us of our new identity in Christ Jesus. Uh, we, we, we live as uh, exiles and sojourners here in this world. And after reminding us of our new identity in Christ, Peter has been talking to us about um, how we as Christians live in a less than ideal world, how we live faithfully uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, in the last passage, we looked at how Christians are to relate to uh, civil authorities. Uh, you know, what do you, what do you do when someone like Nero is your emperor? How do we live faithfully perhaps under a regime that is completely opposed to the, the values that you hold most dear as a Christian. We talked a little bit about how I think our default mode is to, to revolt, right? Uh, to, to rebel. And Peter presses against that. He challenges that and calls us to honor and be subject to every human authority. And Peter's reason ultimately for doing that is theological. He says, do it for the Lord's sake, because in honoring them, you honor the God who put them there in the first place. Now, in the passage we're looking at today, verses 18 through 25, Peter speaks to household servants or household slaves who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's addressing a very practical question. Okay, what what happens now? I've become a Christian. I've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. And yet I'm still subservient to this pagan earthly master. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to relate to them? We'll talk this morning about how this passage may apply to us, but I think first we really need to understand the situation that Peter is addressing. Okay, so here's here's an outline of where we'll we'll try to go today. First, I, I want us to think a little bit more. You've heard me talk about this in the past, but we need to think about the role of household codes in the Greco-Roman world. Because Peter models his his teaching after these codes But as we'll see with some profound differences, we'll see that this week and we'll see a little bit of that more next week as well. Okay, then then we'll zero in on Peter's teaching here. And he's teaching us basically two fundamental realities that we need to have in our hearts to live faithfully as Christians. Two fundamental truths that we need to understand to live the Christian life. And they're simply this. We we live in the sight of God and we seek to pattern our lives after Christ's example. Or putting putting it another way, we, we, we live mindful of God 
and we seek to follow in Christ's footsteps. All right, so household code, thing, we'll talk about that briefly, then we're going to think about these two fundamental realities. But let's turn to read this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And let's, let's listen attentively to God's word this morning. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So I want to get right to it. Let's think for a few minutes about the role of household codes in the Greco-Roman Empire. It's, it's important, I think, to recognize that for, for centuries leading up to and during the time of the New Testament, that Greek moral philosophers were writing these things that were commonly known as household codes. We have examples of this in Aristotle, Plato, Plutarch, uh, a fellow by the name of Dio uh, Chrysostom even wrote a book, a work called Household Management. All, and all of these authors shared a common belief reflective of a, a widely held belief at this time that foundational or fundamental to a, a flourishing, prosperous society was a well-ordered home life, okay? And because of how pervasive this idea was of proper household relationships in the Roman Empire, it, it really is no surprise that when Paul and Peter are writing to Greco-Roman locations, that they give domestic instruction in the form of a household code explaining how Christians can seek to live respectfully and peacefully within that culture, while at the same time subverting certain aspects of those relationships which were contrary to the gospel. And so if you, uh, if you were to just set uh, Peter and Paul's teaching and Ephesians and Colossians alongside of Greco-Roman household codes, which many of them we have that have survived to today, you'll see some similarities. The same relationships are addressed. So 
husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, uh, masters and servants. But there are also some important and profound differences. So, for example, Plato taught that the person, every person in the household found their place and their role under the man's authority. Okay, so the wife, children, slaves were each to submit in their own different ways to the man's authority. And so this is one reason why in in the pagan household codes, the wife, children, and slaves are, are never actually directly addressed. It's a, it's a very, it's an interesting thing. Every single household code that we have access to today, not a single one of them to my knowledge, actually speaks directly to wives or children or slaves because it was the common understanding that they really don't have any personal agency. Instead, it's, it's simply the man's role to make sure that they conform to their role within the household. So they're only ever spoken to indirectly because it's the man's responsibility to make sure everyone under him finds their place so that the household is well ordered. But when you read when you read Peter here and Paul in places like Ephesians 5 and 6 and in his letter to the Colossians, you'll notice that both Peter and Paul speak directly to Wives, to children, and to servants, recognizing their their agency, their personal dignity, and their responsibility within a household. And it's uh, I think it's also worth worth noting here as we compare these two sets of household codes that Peter and Paul speak in familiar terms, using the categories that were widely recognized in the culture of that time, right? So there's a lot in these household codes that even unbelievers would have said, yeah, okay, that's, that's standard fare. So uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Uh, servants, obey your, your masters. And yet, if we really pay attention to what Peter and Paul are saying, we will find that the apostles are radically redefining how we are to think and understand, how how we're to think about and understand these relationships. And so, just one example here. Um, I think this is perhaps the most obvious one. Instead of the man's position being fundamentally self-serving with everything revolving around him, biblical household codes pattern the man's role after Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. And so the Christian husband's call is to love his wife by giving himself up for her. Uh, the, the, The... the father is charged directly with raising his children to know and follow Christ. And the master is now told in Ephesians to no longer treat his servants as servants, but to treat them as brothers in the Lord. 
And here's, here's Paul radically defining, redefining what the exercise of authority will look like in a Christian home. It's rendered in the form of loving service. And so you see, Paul and Peter are working with a cultural convention of their day, but they are certainly not parroting cultural norms. But I think we need to appreciate this, that in that context, the acceptance of one's station or or role in the household was deemed to be absolutely non-negotiable for maintaining order in the home and more largely in society. Okay, so here's what happened. Whenever a new religion popped up in the Roman Empire, people watched very closely. Civil authorities watched very closely to see if the teaching of that new religion would disturb the Roman way of life. Uh, If if any of you read the email I I sent out this uh, past week about reading recommendations, I, I mentioned Karen Job's commentary on 1 Peter, the best commentary on 1 Peter I have read. She's a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary. And along these lines, listen to her. This, these are her, her words. She says, In the first century, any religion that did not uphold the proper order between men and their slaves, between husbands and their wives, was severely criticized. In fact, foreigners were evaluated and welcomed into society to the extent to which their household patterns were compatible with those of the Greek moral philosophers. So I think we have to understand this this background to really see what Peter and Paul are up to when they're writing in this genre of a household code. Peter is trying to help Christians know how they can live faithfully for God in that society and that particular cultural moment, a society that is far, far from ideal. And so he writes in the recognizable form of a household code, and and he's saying to these Christians that becoming a Christian does not turn you into a revolutionary. (laughs) Because rebelling against your master, it's, it's not going to get rid of the blight of slavery, and it's actually going to hinder Christian witness. So we have to put ourselves in the shoes of some of these first century Christians and ask ourselves, okay, so what, what do you do? What do you do with your newfound faith as a household servant with a pagan master? When you have, when you have no recourse to freedom, right? no way to redress the situation, Peter says you subject yourself to your master and you do what's right, even if you must suffer for it, knowing that God sees as you follow in the footsteps of your Savior who suffered for you. So, one of the things we need to appreciate, I think, about the apostles' writing to the churches is that whenever they face the, you know, the enormity of the Greco-Roman establishment, none of them held out hope of changing the world. That was not what they were immediately after. Instead, 
they gave instruction for the transformation of Christ's people living in that world to form a holy people who would stand out in this fallen world. And so servants are told to submit even to unjust suffering as Christ did, because this is actually, this is perhaps counterintuitive to our thinking about the way power works, but this is actually to break the way to break the world's ways and even perhaps one day bring unbelievers to praise and glorify God themselves. Now, I've, I've spent a good bit of time here talking about this cultural background because I think it helps us avoid a mistake that I see all of the time as people read the Bible. You know, among, among skeptics of Christianity and perhaps even some Christians struggle with this. And the mistake is to think here that Peter's actually, what he's wanting to do here is actually give us a manual for how Christian homes are to be ordered today. That's, that's often how this passage is read. So somebody, somebody reads this and look, look here's, here's Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, condoning and approving of slavery. And I hear that all the time. But my friends, Peter is not, he is not for one minute putting a stamp of approval on slavery. He is telling Christians who happen to be servants in a culture where they have no recourse to freedom, how they can live faithfully for Jesus Christ when they're stuck. So don't misunderstand Peter and think that he's somehow justifying slavery. You won't find that in the Bible. But Peter is writing to Christians who live in a culture where servant was, servanthood was a social norm and it was the experience of many first century Christians. It's very likely that the majority of Christians in the first century were in fact household slaves. So what do, what do you do if you're a servant who's come to faith in Christ, but you live in a household that is ruled by a pagan master? What do you do since your new devotion to Christ is destined to set you on a collision course with your master? Now, another thing we've got to keep in mind here is that in this cultural context, in the Roman world, it was the expectation that everyone in the household, right, the, the wife, the children, and the household servants would embrace and follow the religious beliefs and practices of the paterfamilias, the head of the home. Okay? All right, so what do you do if your, your master says, you know, you need to, you need to bow down and worship these idols, or you, you need to offer incense to Caesar with us. What are you supposed to do when your master then is, is, is unjust and cruel, causing you sorrow and suffering, not because of wrongdoing, but because you're simply trying to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Now keep in mind that other parts of the New Testament talk more directly about how the gospel fundamentally subverts the institution of slavery. You could, I've already alluded to Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 and 6 where he, he essentially says to Christians who are masters of a home, 
No longer treat your servants as servants. Treat them as brothers. As Philemon. He's fundamentally redefining the relationship between a master and a servant within the home. Uh, He says, of course, elsewhere that Christians who, who are servants, if you're able to obtain your freedom, by all means, obtain your freedom. But we need to understand that here Peter is specifically talking to Christians who have an unbelieving master who's making life hard for them on account of their new faith, and they've got no recourse to freedom. What should they do? And what about us, you might be thinking? Okay, well, we're, we're in a very different uh, context. None of us are household slaves or servants. Well, still, I think there are important principles here that we need to apply to our own lives. Perhaps, perhaps the closest parallel of application for us in our own context is our relation to our employer. Right? There is a, there's a real sense in which we are the subjects of an employer for, for large portions of our lives. There's a sense in which our time is theirs. There's a sense in which our, our toil and our sweat and our effort is, is for them. We work for them. And because this is a fallen and less than ideal world, sometimes we find ourselves working for unjust just unfair, uncaring individuals, uh, nasty people, maybe, maybe even people who give you a hard time because they know about your convictions as a Christian. So, so what do you do? What do you do if you're in a position where you can't quit your job and you, you need to put food on the table for your family? You need to make ends meet and you have to deal with these difficult people who are, seem to be intent on making your daily life a living hell. Well, see what Peter says here in this passage. Or to respect them and be subject to our masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. See, this is... This is hard teaching, isn't it? This is not a, this is not a popular passage of Scripture. I don't, I don't see many folks hosting this, these verses on Facebook or having these verses as their life verse. There's no way around this. This is, this is hard teaching. This is not God loves you and has a great, wonderful plan for your life. This is not, you know... Um, if you just believe, if you trust in the Lord, he's, he's going to make your life uh, so much better. Things are going to change for you. In fact, Peter is being honest here in saying that your becoming a Christian may very well make your life a whole lot harder. It may lead to new kinds of suffering as you serve a new and higher master. And so Peter says in verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. And he makes it very clear, even when the master is unjust. Verse 19, even when the master brings you sorrow and suffering. Now, just like we said way back when we looked at Christian relation to civil authorities, 
Peter is not saying that we must subject ourselves to human authorities absolutely, right? With no qualification. After all, we serve a higher master. So we cannot violate God's commands to be in subjection to others. So again, if your master says, said a minute ago, you know, you've got to worship my gods, you've got to offer incense to Caesar, Peter would say to those Christians, you must respectfully say no. Or what if your employer asks you at work to, to cut corners, to be dishonest in some way, you know, fudge the numbers a little bit, be dishonest about the number of hours you're working. You know, what, what do you do? Well, you've got to say no with all respect. But if your employer is just uncaring, unfair, and you're without any kind of recourse, what, what do you do? You subject yourself to them with all respect. Again, that's, that's hard. Right? There's nothing pleasant about going to work day after day when your boss or manager or supervisor or, or whomever seems intent on just stressing you out the whole day. It's hard to give respect to such people, but that's what God calls us to do. Now, if we're going to live with this hard teaching, if we're going to live by it, maybe that, that's a better way of putting it, I think we, we need to understand uh, not just what Peter is saying, but the why behind it. Right? What are the reasons Peter can tell Christians to live this way? What are the grounds? Well, notice Peter does not ground what he's saying in fate. He doesn't say, you know, tough luck. You know, you, you, you just, uh, you got, you got a, a, bad deck, a bad hand of cards dealed to you. you know, suck it up, buttercup. He's not saying to us the prosperity gospel lie that if you just have enough faith, things will change for you and your circumstances will get better. No, he's, 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 uh, he's instead grounding his teaching, I want to suggest to you, in a theological and Christological reality. Okay? Those are the grounds Peter gives us for his teaching here. It's ultimately theological and Christological. And here's what I mean by that. Theological, he's saying, live mindful of God and know that he sees you. He sees what you're enduring. And it's a gracious thing in his sight. Theological, Christological, he's saying, draw your life after the pattern of Christ's example. Walk in his footsteps. Those are the two realities that Peter wants us to understand. And that's what I want to unpack here for a few minutes before we wrap up. So let's think first about the theological reality that we live mindful of God, knowing that we are ever before the gaze of God. Being mindful of God, what's that mean? It means, it means that the way we think about the whole world, including the situations we find ourselves in, the way we think about and process everything is done with God in view. We, we seek to think about everything in light, in light of the reality 
of God. This is what Peter wants us to do, even in regard to unjust suffering. Take a look at verse 19 again. In verse 19, the Christian servant in sorrow and suffering and justice at the hands of a cruel master, you see that little phrase, is mindful of God. That, that little phrase is, is so crucial for us to think about. Sometimes it's translated conscious of God. It tells us that we're to think of God and we're to have God define our thinking in every situation of life. So when your employer is unjust, when an authority over you is cruel, when you're faced with sorrow and suffering, Peter is telling you to be mindful of God. Think of God. Think about who he is. Think about what he's promised to do. Friends, if we're honest with ourselves, isn't it the case that it's so easy to forget God in precisely these kinds of circumstances? To forget who he is, to forget what he's promised to do. Now, Peter goes on in verse 20 and says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. In the sight of God. God sees your situation. He's reminding them. So being mindful of God means that when we endure suffering. At the hand of an unjust master. We're doing something. That's pleasing to God. See what Peter's doing. Peter is pointing us beyond the cruelty. Of an earthly master to God. He's saying look beyond your Look beyond your master, look beyond your boss, and look to God. And he's showing us that when we are mindful of God, we are free to endure suffering and even render honor and subjection to cruel masters because our ultimate desire is to please God, to render honor and subjection to God. See, it's not so much our master that we are serving. It's our God we are serving. And by honoring earthly authorities, we show ourselves to be servants, not of earthly masters, but of God himself. And so Peter's trying to help these Christians understand we, we can yield ourselves to earthly authorities, even unjust ones, as we seek to honor God. It's because we're mindful of God, verse 19. If you back up to the last passage, it's for the Lord's sake, verse 13, that we do it. Verse 20, it's because we want to do what is gracious and pleasing in God's sight. And you see, you can only do this, you can only live this way if you understand that you live before the gaze of God. You live in his sight. If you're thinking of everything with reference to him, when we are aware of God, we can do what Jesus tells us to do. We can turn the other cheek when we suffer for doing good. But let's again be honest with ourselves because I don't think for a single one of us in this room, that's our default mode. It's certainly not my default mode. My default mode would be to retaliate to get, to get even, to defend myself. 
But Peter is reminding us that in Christ, our default mode is overwritten. No, no longer do we respond to injustice with vengeance because we're mindful of God, the supreme authority who judges all justly. Now, I think we need to say a few things about this passage to avoid misapplying it, okay? Uh, talked a little bit about this in Sunday school with, with Job's counselors, how they could, they could take truth and twist it in such a way that it became untruth. And we could very easily do that with a passage like this. All right, so let's, let's avoid misapplying this, right? By holding up for us Christ's example of quiet endurance in the face of suffering, Peter is not suggesting that those of us who are suffering unjust treatment should simply endure it quietly. And that's all there is to say. That's the end of the matter. He, he doesn't intend to say to victims of injustice that it's wrong to pursue justice in this world. But the people to whom he was writing, we, we, we have to understand this. They were not in positions of influence. They, they didn't have political sway. They didn't have a voice in society. This is just the way it was. They were stuck. And so these are words of counsel to them. But we, we need to be thankful for the fact that we, we often do have recourse and we may legitimately make use of those means to pursue what's right, but we must always do so in a way that reflects the character of Christ. And I want to be absolutely clear about this as well. We should, no one should ever use this passage. Abusers cannot use this passage. Anyone who would try to cover for abusers cannot use this passage as a way to keep the abused in silence. Telling them that their abuse is a gracious thing in God's sight. That is, that is both manipulative and adding to the abuse that has already been taking place. It's a profound distortion of Peter's teaching. So let's, let's be clear about that as we try to rightly apply Peter's teaching here. So, while there are often paths to earthly redress and justice available to us that we, we can and often should make use of, we need to recognize that there are also often circumstances where we, we too still have no way of bringing about the justice that we long for this side of the new creation. What do you do? You know, maybe you feel the... the uh, low-grade hostility of co-workers who, who know your, your beliefs as a Christian and they, they make the workplace miserable for you. Now, there may very well be means to address those issues, but it's often the case that taking those means may just make life more difficult for you, right? In your workplace and in your relationships, you can't afford to lose your job, and so you're stuck in a way. What do you do? Well, the first thing Peter says is you live mindful of God. And the second thing Peter says is you follow Christ's example. Right? That's the second thing Peter urges. Like him, 
Like Christ, we entrust ourselves to God who judges justly when we are reviled for doing good. And we do not revile in return, Peter says. We, we, in other words, we don't, we don't give as we get. We, we love and reply to mockery and disdain. We, we show kindness in response to, to scorn and malice. We serve in response to injustice. And we do it because we are mindful of God and because we know that is what Jesus is like and we want to be like him. And so Peter urges us to follow Christ. Now, what Peter says is actually that the calling of all Christians is a call to suffer for doing good, just as Jesus suffered unjustly. So verse 21, he says, um, He suffered, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Now, this is, this is really striking imagery that, that Peter uses here. The Greek word that's translated example refers to uh, patterns of letters that students would have traced as they were learning a language, as they were learning to write. So really the word example isn't quite strong enough. It's too weak. Jesus' suffering is not simply one example for us to follow. It is the paradigm by which we are seeking to trace our lives. And so if Christians are to to live as servants of God, then we need to understand that the essence of that identity is a willingness to suffer unjustly as Jesus did, displaying in that suffering the same attitude and behavior that he did. Jesus left us the pattern over which we are to trace our lives As we follow in his footsteps. Now there's more imagery that Peter gives us. It's another powerful picture. We we follow Jesus and that means we don't don't go off on our own direction. But the direction that he took. Where the cross preceded the crown. Where humiliation came before exaltation. And so having called us to imitate Christ and having come to the suffering of Christ, notice that now Peter, Peter doesn't make the, the blunder of allowing us to think that somehow our suffering is what saves us. No, instead he makes it very clear that it's the unique suffering of Jesus Christ alone that saves us. And so he does that. He reflects on Christ's suffering through the words of Isaiah 53, a passage, of course, that we know about the suffering servant. So in verse 22, he reminds us that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, that uh, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he entrusted himself to God. And then in verse 24, he tells us, By his wounds, you have been healed. And I want to just notice briefly here the goal of Christ's suffering that Peter mentions. Do you see it in verse 24? Uh, The goal of Christ's suffering, in one word, is our sanctification. 
He suffered so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, of course, we, the gospel tells us more than that, right? That Jesus suffered to set us free from the condemnation of the law. He, set us free, or he suffered so that we could be forgiven. He, he suffered on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. But here's another wonderful dimension of the gospel that we need to come to terms with, dear brothers and sisters, that Jesus suffered so that we might have an entirely new relationship to sin and a new relationship to God. We might die to sin and live to God. And please, please hear me clearly here. I am, I am not trying to give you some kind of new law Peter here is is expounding a reality that Christ has secured by his suffering for you on the cross. He has secured for you a life that is dead to sin and alive to God. So that we can live this way. So that we can be like him. He bore our sins on the tree. That we might no longer live for sin, but now live for God. He died to make us like himself. And so we need to understand that by no means are we saved by because we suffer. We're saved because Christ suffered for us. But in the Christian life, our suffering is not meaningless. It's not worthless. It doesn't go to waste. God uses it To make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ as we follow in his footsteps. And here's one final thing I I think we need to appreciate about this passage. Simply to recognize Peter is writing to nobodies. He is writing to the lowest of the low in society at that time. No name people. We have no idea who these men and women were. We have no idea what they experienced and endured. What they they lived through did not happen on this big grand stage for other people to see. But Peter is reminding them that God sees. That God knows. That he watches over them. That they're known to God. What a helpful reminder that is to all of us because we're a bunch of nobodies, aren't we? In the grand scheme of things, we're rarely called to suffer in any way that draws much attention. But daily we are called to endure patiently and suffer for Christ in ways that perhaps no one else will ever see or know about except God. And perhaps, perhaps we, will be in, we will be called to endure some of these things for a long time, the rest of our lives, the rest of our days. And maybe nobody else will see or take notice, but Peter's reminding us, God sees. God sees our suffering for his sake, all of it. And Peter says it is a gracious thing in his sight. And so again, friends, this is, a, this is a challenging teaching. This is one of those passages where very honestly, pastors are probably 
uh, questioning the practice of preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. But here's why we do it. Because we're not going to shy away from the hard teaching that God has given us in his word. Peter tells Christian slaves how to live with unbelieving and unjust masters. But there is a very pressing word for us here as well that we need to hear. The Christian life images Jesus Christ, who was a suffering servant, obedient to God, and was treated unjustly in the world. That's, that's the Christian life as we are being conformed to the pattern of Christ Jesus, following in his footsteps. And we need to understand that was Jesus' life here. And Peter, here's the, here's the thing that really just, uh, just left me speechless when I realized it. Here are these household slaves in the Roman Empire who are the lowest of the low, ignored by everybody. And here is Peter setting them forth as an example for all Christians everywhere because he sees in the life and experience of these household servants people who are being conformed to the pattern of Christ and who are following in his footsteps. Jesus is the true model for how we live a life of freedom, even in the midst of human servitude and injustice. We live mindful of God, tracing our lives after Jesus, who bore our sins on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Dear friends, that's true freedom. Let's pray together as we prepare to come to the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your word and the instruction that it gives us. We thank you that at times it convicts us and challenges us, that it heals us and makes us whole, and for all the ways that equips us to live as faithful servants of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would take this word now and write it upon all of our hearts, that we might follow in Christ's steps. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.